Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. My next guest is a living legend, John Irving. He is a literary giant, critically acclaimed, award-winning, best-selling author and screenwriter. Several of his books have become iconic, The World According to Garp, The Cider House Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany. His books have been translated into more than 35 languages, and many of them have been made into films, including the 1999 film The Cider House Rules that was nominated for Best Picture and won Irving the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. John Irving grew up in New Hampshire. He now lives in Toronto, but he has been an honorary Iowan for a very long time. He attended the Iowa Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa from 1965 to 1967 and later came back to teach at the workshop in the early 70s. There are Iowa plot lines and touchstones in many of his novels, and he is returning to Iowa City on October 13th, where he'll be on stage at Hancher Auditorium in conversation with Lan Samantha Chang, director of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, an event that has been sold out for a very long time. But he is here with me now, John Irving. This is such an honor. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, I want to start with doing a little bit of reminiscing, going back in time to the mid-1960s when you came to Iowa for the Writers' Workshop. What drew you here? What made you come to Iowa City? Well, I I had the good fortune of of knowing a couple of uh, writers on the English department at the University of New Hampshire um, who knew about Iowa and 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 knew that it was um that the MFA program the the writers workshop was was a very supportive uh environment for uh, a young writer and they advocated um for me on my behalf and and uh I felt very welcome in Iowa City uh as a uh, as a student, um, I I loved it there, and my uh, best fortune of all was that um, Kurt Vonnegut was my uh, teacher. He was the first reader for my first novel, and I don't think um, uh, I could have been luckier than that uh, simultaneity of finding him at that time, I, I was writing a, a historical novel um, set in Vienna, both pre-war and post-war, uh, and Vonnegut's own World War II experience um, as a prisoner of war in, in Dresden uh, made him an especially uh, insightful reader for for me uh, for that. Uh, first novel. I couldn't really have been uh, luckier. And because at the time, uh, Kurt, among my fellow MFA students, had the reputation by his paperback covers of being a science fiction writer. Um, Some of my fellow students were such snobs 
that they dismissed him and uh, didn't sign up for any of his uh, classes so that everyone who did sign up for Kurt Vonnegut meant that we had not judged him by his paperback covers. Um, we'd actually read him and knew that he was uh, much more than uh, any genre could contain. Um, and and so we felt especially lucky, those few of us, and there were only a few of us, who originally uh, chose to work with Vonnegut. And it was those of us who'd read him and, and realized that um, he was not as advertised. He was something much more. You graduated with your MFA in 67, but then you came back again in the early 70s. So you weren't gone from Iowa City very long. And I mean, just like people in Iowa City love to tell whatever nuggets of stories they can come up with about Kurt Vonnegut living here, people tell stories about John Irving living here, too. And uh, at least from what I've heard, it sounds like you really made the most out of your time in Iowa City really engaging with the community and also with the wrestling program. Well, it it, it was just good fortune for me um, both times I was there. I was um, competing probably longer than I should have as a wrestler since I was um, never a very good wrestler um, to begin with. I certainly would never have been a starter on an Iowa team, but I was happy to have um, uh, wrestlers around and, and a wrestling room to go to um, where I could uh, get a, a good workout um, uh, to say the least. It was it was um, it, it was it, it, it was a, a stimulating uh, support uh, group for me. But I think most of all in the case of the workshop, um, uh, I, I felt very strongly how I had been well served as a student, and I was uh, very excited by uh, the good students I had uh, at Iowa, and and my uh, support of them was uh, important uh, to me. Those those years in the seventies when uh, I was there before. My fourth novel, The World According to God, my first bestseller, was published. But for many of the years I was teaching uh, at Iowa, that was the novel I was writing uh, while I was there. Um, it, it was a formative experience for me um, of the best uh, possible kind, both as a student uh, and uh, as, as, as a teacher. Um, and uh, remember, I was a very young father. I, my first child was born when I was still an undergraduate. When I went to Iowa as a student, um, uh, I already had children. I had children when I went back there to teach. And Iowa City was also a, a, a great, safe, welcoming, uh, exciting town to have little kids in. Um, it, it it was just a it was just a really um, supportive environment uh, for me in two similar but different walks of life. 
You've been asked to, re- to reflect on your influences so many times, and I'm going to do it again. Sorry. Um, but I, I am struck by the fact that, that when you tell stories about the things that really you feel shaped you and your writing, there are two stories that come up the most. And, and one is reading Great Expectations by Charles Dickens when you were 15 years old. And then the other is about becoming a wrestler. So tell me a little bit about that. Why do you think wrestling was so in, important in shaping you as a writer? Well, it, it was coincidental in the beginning, but I it, it turned out to have some meaning in my life that the two things that mattered the most to me um, began when I was uh, just turning 15, when I was 14 going on 15. Namely, uh, I began wrestling at the same age that I imagined I would never be happy with myself if I couldn't be a novelist like Charles Dickens. The, the, these two things had no bearing with, with one another. They were completely coincidental that they began at the same time. But until that moment, I had never been very interested in sports. Uh, I I grew up in a northern New England climate. Everyone in my uh, family skied. I had um, sizably less interest in skiing than most members of my family. Um, I tried all the sports my friends were playing. Uh, I was too small to even think about uh, football. I hated Little League baseball. I hated baseball. I, I I saw myself as may my friends uh, kept doing these things that were athletic. I hated athletic things. Um, I didn't care for them at all. And and then my mother took me to see a wrestling match, and I I loved it. And it turned out um, uh, she was friends with the coach, and I loved him. And all of a sudden. There was a, a a sport in my life, the only sport in my life I ever cared about. Um, and it began uh, simultaneously to my imagining that I would never be happy if I couldn't be a novelist like Charles Dickens. Well, the few friends I had at the age of 15 who even read novels hated Dickens. They hated all those 19th century novels that we'd been made to read in school, but those were the only novels I liked. The the godheads of that moment of contemporary American fiction, Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, if they had been my models, I would have done something else for a living. I wouldn't have wanted to be a writer. I didn't much care for them. I hated Hemingway. I could tolerate Faulkner and Fitzgerald, but I certainly didn't feel inspired by them. It was those novels of the 19th century that were the model of the form for me. So that I felt a little doomed from the start in that I had attached myself to something that was long dead and already old fashioned. 
and this was what I aspired to be. Um, the kind of writer all of my friends hated. <laughs> so uh, that was a little daunting. Right. We we have to we have to take just a short break. I'm it worked out okay in the end, which is great. But <laughs> we'll be back. Not okay. <laughs> we'll be back in just a moment. I am talking with literary legend John Irving, author and screenwriter, also Iowa Writers Workshop graduate and former teacher in the workshop as well. He's returning to Iowa City on October 13th, where he'll be on stage at Hampshire Auditorium. We'll continue in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Neppy. With me this hour is literary legend John Irving, critically acclaimed, award-winning, best-selling author and screenwriter. You have at least heard of his books, The World According to Garp, The Cider House Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and so many others. His books have been translated into more than 35 languages. Many have been made into films. And, of course, if you, at least if you live in Iowa City, you know that John Irving is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. He attended from 1965 to 67 and later came back to teach at the workshop in the early 70s. And he's coming back to Iowa City on October 13th. He'll be on stage at Hancher Auditorium in conversation with Lan Samantha Chang, director of the Iowa Writers Workshop. And he is with me now. And, you know, um, I started reading your work when I was in high school, which was in the early 90s. And uh, I was not a sophisticated enough reader back then to see the influence of Charles Dickens. I was a Dickens fan and I was a John Irving fan, so maybe that tells me something. But I now, of course, when I read your work, I can see the literary devices that you use that I can also see in Dickens' work and the literary references, of course. But also now, when I read, I see your influence on current writers. One that springs to mind is Nathan Hill, who just came out with a brilliant new novel called Wellness. Do you see your fingerprints on other people's work now? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy when, when other writers... Um, reference me or 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 cite me as an example especially someone who is as interesting as 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 Nathan is we've we've been on stage together we know each other slightly and um uh, I, I I wish him well yes I'm I'm happiest of all to be read by uh younger writers I never uh e expected this um I, I think it's more common in the United States 
for writers to be uh, discovered with their 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 first novel or never um and when it didn't happen with my first novel or my second or my third um i was um pretty content with the idea that it would be never um and was the last to believe that the world according to garp was going to be or would prove to be the breakout novel that my um editor told me uh, he believed it would be um i i was disinclined uh to believe that and i always somehow thought um it it would um end and that i would um end up supporting myself by teaching and uh coaching wrestling which were two things i felt comfortable doing and um I didn't dislike doing those things. I just wished for the writing of my first four novels that I had more time to write. Um, I didn't dislike teaching. I didn't dislike coaching. Um, I felt, okay, I'm qualified to do these things. Um, I enjoy being around uh, uh, young writers or uh, young wrestlers. I, I think I can be of some help to them. Um, they, they seem to me to be honorable forms of employment. Um, but I didn't want to write for only two or three hours a day and not every day of the week. I believed I could write for seven or eight hours a day, seven days a week, if I got the chance. Um, it was a blow to me when I did get the chance that it I needed the writing of one book, The Hotel New Hampshire, to learn how to pace myself for seven days a week, all day. Uh, I was really disappointed in myself that when I was first given the chance to write every day, all day, I couldn't do it. Uh, I, I, I couldn't extend my concentration for over that length of time. Well, by the time I got to the sixth book, by the time I got to the Cider House Rules, I knew how to do it. Wow. It's so extraordinary to think about the the level of concentration and the endurance, the stamina to be able to do that when you are are doing that. Is it almost as if for that seven hours a day that you're living in your novel? You know, this is where I think it's easy to say that anything that was a hardship at the time, it's easy to look back at the hardship and say, oh, that was formative. And it, right. was, it was good for me to go through that. I certainly didn't feel when I was going through it that it was any damn good for me at all. Uh, I, I wished quite the other um, uh, scenario for myself, all the success imaginable and all the time I wanted. Um, well, Way, the way it turned out, it always felt like a luxury to me to be able to do the uh, the one thing that I not only felt I knew how to do, but the one thing I most wanted to do, to be a novelist. And to be able to be self-supporting at that, to be able to do it all the time uh, and not have to uh, worry about the constraints of having another job 
Well, that was such a luxury that I've I've never uh, looked back. I I don't think of myself as workaholic or uh, being exceptionally uh, disciplined. You have to be disciplined to do those 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 things you you don't like. The things you love, the discipline comes naturally. Um, if you love if you love doing it, it's just a matter of learning how. Um, be, be, because the discipline is no burden. You mentioned The World According to Garp, which was your breakthrough novel and transformed your life. It, I think it transformed a lot of people's lives. The novel was published in 1978. And again, you know, I was reading your early work in the early 1990s. And when I came to that work in the early 90s, it felt so different, so progressive, a little bit mind blowing. And I think about how radical it felt in the early 90s, given that it had come out in the late 70s. And I think that that if you picked it up today, it might still feel it would definitely still feel progressive, but maybe even still a, a little radical. You have been writing about families, different kinds of families, different kinds of identities for so long. You know, when you think about writing about Roberta Muldoon in The World According to Garp, which I'm sure for a lot of people is the very first transgender character that they ever encountered. It was for me, for a lot of people, maybe the first transgender person they encountered. Uh, how were you thinking about that in the late 70s? Well, a couple of things came naturally to me. I don't credit myself with being prophetic or prescient uh, in in imagining them. My mother was a nurse's aide in a county family counseling service. Um, for the most part, she counseled young unmarried women who were pregnant. In many cases, these were girls who were so young, they were legally under the age to be having sex. And she was doing this work, counseling young, uh, unmarried uh, women and girls, both before Roe versus Wade and after. And when the girl was 12 or 13 or 14, uh, it didn't necessarily get all that much easier after Roe versus Wade. There, there was always a lot of counseling to do. In my late teens and early 20s, I already knew that my younger brother and sister, boy-girl twins, uh, were gay and lesbian. Uh, and everyone in my family was um, concerned uh, or very watchful um, of how they were tolerated and accepted or not. Uh, and I remember one family vacation um, sometime in the 70s. I was writing GARP. I had two young children of my own. And I was home for some holiday. And I overheard my mother. She was in another room. And she was 
angry. She was often angry. She was often angry at someone on television. And when she was speaking angrily, and I wasn't in the same room, often it was to somebody on television. And what she said was, was very straightforward and very clear. She said, if men can treat women as if we're sexual minorities, how much worse will they treat gay men and lesbian women? Well, uh, uh, at the time, I just thought, who is she talking to now? Because it clearly wasn't someone in our family. It was clearly some goof on the television. Somebody had said something stupid in her estimation on TV. And at the time, my only curiosity, because I had certainly heard my mother say things like this before, my only curiosity was who she's saying this to now. But it was too late. The moment was over. And by the time I found her in another room, she was doing something else and had moved on and would have been irritated with me if I'd asked her who she was talking to. <laughs> it didn't matter who she was talking to. Well, I say that because my awareness that women were treated in many cases as if they were sexual minorities, as if they didn't count somehow or count as much. Uh, and I was aware of the endangerment to the lack of acceptance of actual sexual minorities, um, gay men and uh, lesbian women. I, I had a, a family interest, so to speak, in uh, people who were um, pushed to the outside, who were treated as uh, outsiders. I think now when I hear some older novels of mine described as being prophetic or prescient or, or um, so to speak, ahead of their time, I, I beg to differ. I don't ever believe that I've been ahead of my time. I'm very bad at projecting the future. In the Vietnam years, I remember confidently feeling that I would never see my country as divided again as I was convinced it was divided then. Wrong. The United States is much more divided, much more polarized today on many more different issues than it ever was in the Vietnam War. So I don't think I'm very good at the future. What makes many of my novels look full of prescience um, or prophecy is how backward the sexual politics in the United States continue to be. It's not me who's forward. It's the U.S. that's backward. I think about your influence by Charles Dickens and about how radical a lot of his writing seemed to people of his time as he was looking around him and seeing the the poverty and all of the injustice and the abuse. And it feels like you are doing something very similar in amplifying, amplifying 
the issues of LGBTQ individuals, of women, and showing us ourselves in this way. Do you feel like like that's similar to what Dickens was doing? Yes and no. Again, I uh, I I don't think there's there's very much that's original about me. I began my life as a writer wanting to imitate the great novels of the 19th century. I tried very hard to imitate them. Uh, there's some advantage when you're trying to uh, imitate Charles Dickens or Herman Melville is that I could never really sound like them if I tried. The language has changed. Uh, I, I, so that uh, the fact that I was shamelessly and openly imitating um, these models of the form for me um, was, I think, largely unnoticed, even though I said, this is what I'm doing. This is why I always said um, this was uh, what I was doing. When the Supreme Court uh, made its terrible judgment on Roe versus Wade, I was first of all reminded of what uh, Dickens had um, written uh, a very long uh, time ago. Um, uh, I was very much reminded of what he wrote about the law. It is far better to suffer a great wrong, he wrote, than to have recourse to the far greater wrong of the law. Well, he got that right. I wanted to send that to every member of that court and, and, and tell them how decidedly out of it they were, how decidedly wrong uh, they, they were the what, what's what's happened uh, to abortion rights in in the United States. Um, well, I I miss my mother. I'm sorry she's gone, but when I see what's happened with abortion rights, and I know how, um, uh, I know everything she would say about that, and how it would have affected her. Um, there's a part of me that's glad she's not here to see um, that much willful backwardness and uh, causing a pain. Um, it's uh, you know it's 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 um, it's not uh, acceptable. I'm talking with John Irving, literary legend, author, and screenwriter. He is coming to Iowa City in October. He'll be on the stage at Hancher Auditorium on October 13th, and we will continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me is John Irving. He is a literary giant, an author, a screenwriter. You've heard of his books. Hopefully you've read a few. The World According to Garp, The Cider House Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and so many others. He also won an Oscar for his adaptation of The Cider House Rules into a movie that came out in 1999. And you have said that you're most recent book, The Last Chairlift, you've said that that's your last long novel. And it it is a, a long novel. It's a 900-page novel. And reading it, you there are so many themes that come back again and again in your books. A, a few minutes ago, you quoted something that your mother said. And the mother in The Last Chairlift says the very same thing about women being treated as, as sexual minorities when she's in the book. There are autobiographical elements. There are, you know, non-traditional definitions of family. There are are these identities that come back again and again. In reading the novel, it felt to me like you were frustrated that you wanted to say these things. You wanted people to hear the things that you've been saying all along, once and for all. Was there, in writing that novel, was there a sense of, okay, I've got one more big shot to say all of these things that I want people to feel and understand? <laughs> it's a it's an awfully long novel um, to be based on the premise of, I told you so. <laughs> of that. <laughs> I wouldn't deny that there's a very strong element of, I've not only told you this before, but for how many years are you going to make me go on saying it? Yeah. Uh, there are a number of ways to um, look at um, the last chairlift, not least as in the beginning, a kind of conscious parody of earlier novels of mine. It's very funny when it starts. The chapters in the early going are very short. Uh, I learned from Moby Dick, if you want to write a long novel and keep the reader's attention, start short, short little chapters. Um, make them funny. It's not funny where it's going. Uh, and the farther into the novel you get, the longer the chapters get um, in the last chairlift, too. It's a novel about a straight guy with an all-queer family. And everyone in Adam's family is ahead of him, smarter than he is, better behaved than he is, certainly better behaved sexually. I don't think I'm telling anybody anything they don't know by saying that the only straight guy in the family is the most badly behaved sexually. Surely we already knew that, didn't we? Um, but if not, um, I'll tell you again. Um, so I knew the novel would be a long one. There are a lot of major minor characters. Uh, there's 80 years passage of time. Uh, and many of those characters are going to be followed most of the way. So there are a lot of narrative ends to follow. Also, it's a first person novel. 
like A Prayer for Owen Meany. It's a novel about how much you're going to miss someone or more than one person when they're gone. And it's always been my feeling. I don't like the first person narrative. I would prefer to be in the third person omniscient voice every time. But if one of the premises of the story, one of the emotional groundings of the story is how much you're going to miss a character you're going to lose, you feel the loss, I believe, more strongly if you're in the point of view of the character who misses that character more than you do. Right, that deep empathy. The first person voice as a storyteller is going to be longer because you have to account for how that narrator knows what he or she knows. There's a whole lot more explaining to do. Um, on the other hand, six years to write a novel, uh, start to finish, is average or a little under average uh, for me. Uh, in the case of, uh, yes, it's my longest novel, but it's not one of my hardest novels because there was nothing in it I had to learn outside my own life's experience. You didn't have to learn gynecological surgery, right. et cetera, <laughs> right. In the case of novels that were shorter, but took much longer to write, uh, I had to learn about a whole kind of life that I haven't lived before I could even begin. And that wasn't the case with, with this novel. I grew up skiing, I know skiing, I've lived in all of these places that are um, described in this novel. I was in the avalanche in Wengen, et cetera, et cetera. And it turned out to be fortuitous what a great novel it was to be writing during the pandemic. I didn't have to go anywhere. It was, it was, it was a good time to stay home. <laughs> So, you know, I didn't plan that. That was just the way it turned out. It, it's also, I think, uh, a novel that pleases me in that all of my novels are certainly ending-driven. I always know where I'm going before I begin. But in the case of this novel, I knew more about this ending before I started than I've known about most novels. That is to say, I didn't just have a last sentence. I had two or three last sentences that would have worked equally well. I didn't just have a last chapter. I had the last four or five chapters mm. that were pretty well mapped out before I wrote the first one. So uh, there was a lot ahead of myself that I was going toward, and I knew exactly what it was. So in, in that sense, long doesn't necessarily translate as hardest. You... Um... I mean, in that novel there, the, the body count is so high, I'm not sure I could come up with it right now. Um, there are these these heart-wrenching losses. Then there's also a lot of other incidental death. You, you have written a lot about mortality in this novel, in all your novels. How are you thinking about your own mortality right now, what, you're 81 years old? Yes. Yeah. So how how does the man who has has described all of these ends think about his own? 
I don't worry about it anymore. I mean, I, I, at my age, I, uh, what I worry about most of all is is not being a burden um, uh, to my uh, family. I mean, I hope I, um, uh, I've already lived a long time. I'm already grateful for uh, being healthy and living as long as I have. Um, uh, so I don't. Um, I don't feel uh, any urgency or any differently about uh, dying than I always have. I've had a long run. I just, I'm not kidding when I say, as I've said for the last several books now, that I would prefer to die writing at my desk. It would, everyone would know where to find me. Uh, it would be the least amount of trouble for everyone I know. And uh, I honestly don't think more about me or more about that, or, or I, I, I don't think about it. The emotional underpinnings of my novels, that is, like Dickens, I believe I am writing to emotionally affect uh, a reader, to move a reader, to laughter or to tears means more to me than persuading a reader intellectually. So I'm, I am aiming for an emotional payoff to the, the stories I imagine, to the characters I imagine. It's quite simple. If the reader doesn't love a character or doesn't feel emotionally invested in a character, the reader won't care what happens to the character. Well, that also translates into how interested the reader is in the narrative. A novel has to be more interesting after 400 pages than it was on 40 pages, or the reader won't keep going. And why is it more interesting? Because you care about the characters and you're afraid for what might happen to the most vulnerable of them. So it's my job to create a character and let the reader into the secret of what you have to be afraid for in the case of that character, what you have to be afraid for in the case of this character, and there are reasons to be afraid for them. They are vulnerable for this, this, this. You can think of the reasons. It's not unlike being in a large family. Uh, I learned this from the moment my first child was born. When you love someone like a child incontrovertibly, that also means you're afraid for what might happen to that child. Well, I I write novels that way. Um, that's how you build a story. What is, you're living in Toronto now, um, what is daily life like for you? Is there another project that that you've gotten involved with? Well, I'm... 14 chapters into a new novel, um, which is pretty good since I 
only published the last one less than a year ago. Yeah. Who <laughs> one is 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 ahead of where I usually am. And in this case, because it's a much shorter novel, I would estimate that those 14 chapters are at least a third, probably closer to a half uh, of the whole novel. So I'm I'm making good progress in in a new novel. And there's a couple of other novels, two or three other novels, uh, waiting. I don't know which one is after this one. But each of those novels that are waiting is even shorter than the one I'm writing now. I've made a point over the last few years of trying to choose the hardest-looking novel or the longest-looking novel to write first. I've done a pretty good job of that, and the novels remaining um, are all very much shorter. Um, and in most cases, easier. You have chosen to maintain a, a dual citizenship um, with the United States and Canada. You're still very politically engaged with what's going on in the United States, clearly. But you have chosen not to live in the United States. Why did that feel like an important move to make for you? Well, um, my wife is a Canadian. She was the Canadian publisher of the Cider House Rules uh, when we met. I've been living for as many as three or four months of the year in Canada for more than 30 years. The decision to be here full-time in Toronto uh, and to become a Canadian citizen was that at my age, uh, with uh, osteoporosis, I have no business skiing anymore. I shouldn't be skiing anymore. And my children are all older. There was no reason for me to continue to live in a ski town. And my wife, because I had, um, uh, I was looking after uh, two children of, from a previous marriage. My wife moved to the United States, became a United States citizen, worked in the United States to accommodate me. And so I felt it was only fair to reciprocate. You know, I remember once some. Um, asking her, where would you choose to live uh, if I died? And she said, well, I go back to Toronto. She's from Toronto. And I said, well, let's go back now. Our reasons for living where we did at whichever time we chose to live there were entirely uh, personal, not uh, political. As you say, I'm no less involved in the politics of my birth country than I was. I'm a dual citizen. I vote in two countries. Um, and it matters to me. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not detached in any way from um, the US, except I, uh, I live in Toronto because I like Toronto. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very 
happy here. And I'm returning the favor to my wife, um, who came and lived in the United States, um, because she knew at the time I couldn't uh, I couldn't leave. I, I couldn't live anywhere else. Well, now I'm free to leave. I'll live here. Well, we're awfully excited that you're coming back to Iowa City. And uh, I, I love Iowa City. I, <laughs> I've, I've been very happy in Iowa City a bunch of times. And and uh, I'm always uh, happy to go back. And the Writers' Workshop is a, is a special um, uh has a special place in my heart. Iowa wrestling has a special place uh, in my heart. I've got um, I've got some old friends in Iowa City, and I'm looking forward to seeing them. John Irving, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. John Irving is the critically acclaimed, award-winning, best-selling author of The World According to Garp, The Cider House Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and many other books and screenplays. He'll be in Iowa City on October 13th for a sold-out event at Hancher Auditorium. This episode of Talk of Iowa was produced by Caitlin Troutman. I'm Charity Nebbe.